as a result of the fall of man, human stupidity knows no bounds. Rebellious man wants nothing more than to declare himself as God. And the first thing that he desires is the redefining of history. But as we have seen throughout history, and even in our own modern times, he also wants to redefine what is normal and what is not. This is the 22nd sermon in the series, Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our Old Covenant reading coming from Samuel in chapter 8, beginning now in verse 10, beginning in verse 10 through the end of the chapter, verse 22. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning, and by inspiration of God, the prophet writes. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people and asked that asked of him a king. And he said, This will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, and to be his horsemen. And some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains of a thousands and captains of a fifties, and will set them to ear his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers. And he will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your manservants and your maidservants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your sheep and ye shall be his servants. And ye shall cry out in that day because of your king, which ye shall have chosen you. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people. And he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Hearken unto their voice, and make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, Go ye every man unto his city. Paul, counseling the pastor, the elder at Ephesus, Timothy, 2 Timothy and chapter 4. 2 Timothy and chapter 4, the first five verses. As the apostle Paul He's giving good counsel to Timothy as a soldier of Christ in the army of the kingdom. By inspiration of God, he says this, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away. God's words stands this day before us and before the nations of the world as the truth of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, whenever a people are bent upon satisfying their own lusts, they will go to any and every extent possible to have that lust satiated. Whether it is a personal lust or a politically motivated lust, they will stop at nothing to get their way. Such was the situation in Israel. During the days of Samuel, Saul, and David, this was the situation that the judges left Israel in. People were doing that which was right in their own eyes, and that was enough for them. Now, by desiring a pagan king, they refused to listen to the voice of reason by rejecting the voice of God through his prophet Samuel, even when the consequences that Samuel paraded before them, even when the consequences of their action was spelled out to them, that they would be miserable and destroyed because of their pagan king. But they didn't care. At that point, they were blinded. And the scripture says very clearly, nevertheless, after Samuel parades everything before them, after they were told that you will have a tyrant, all of your rights will be taken away, your daughters will be taken, your sons will be taken, your property will be taken, everything will be taken, even after they were told in no uncertain terms, explicitly, they said, nevertheless, in other words, we don't really care. We want our lust satisfied. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, nay, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. Even though they knew the nations were being cursed of God and destroyed by God, they saw this in the history of Israel, they saw it in Egypt, and yet they still wanted to be like those destructive nations. By refusing to hearken to the voice of God's prophet. They were effectively rebelling against God. Now consider what they demanded. Very clearly, they did not want to be a special people. They no longer were satisfied by being unique. They wanted to be like all of the other pagan nations of the world. Secondly, now they may have had a nationalistic pagan king to judge them, but they would be destroyed by that king and it really didn't even matter to them. They had a nationalistic idea. So, these pagan nations were nationalistic and they wanted to be like that. They wanted nationalism. And they wanted that this king would be there to solve their nation's problems through military conflict. They wanted a state of the military, a military state. Now, Israel looked at the nations of the world and they weren't, idiotic people. But they became idiotic. Initially, they were not foolish people, but they did become fools. Because their lust had blinded them. And so, in their blindness, they looked at the nations of the world and they, out of their blindness and their folly, they decided... Incredibly, they decided with all the history of the destruction of those nations and God's hot burning anger against those nations, in all of their folly, they decided that they would be better off structuring their nation like the nations of the world rather than the structure that God gave them. The structure that they once had. Where they had liberty and equity and and freedom and righteousness. They wanted to trade it all in for something that was destructive. And this was insanity since the nation 
acts that were not structured biblically with God as their covenant head were always under the curse of God. Now, to be under God's curse meant that the population of that nation would live in misery and often under the iron hand of tyranny. But that's what they wanted. Obviously, that's what they wanted. So Israel, like our nation today, believed that they knew better than God. And at the root of Israel's problem was that they had completely lost sight of their reason for existing as a nation. The only reason why Israel was existing as a nation, the only reason why God had Israel a special nation, was so that they would be an example of righteousness and justice and equity and peace and prosperity for all of the other nations to look at, to say, oh, look at what a godly nation this is and look at what a godly governing structure they have and maybe we should follow that structure. But no, they said, no, we will be like those nations. That was their mission as a nation. The fulfillment of that mission meant if they would be God's people, if they would understand what their mission was as a nation, to be a godly nation, a government structured under the basics of God's law, the fulfillment of that mission meant blessing, but not only for one generation, but for many. If they would have been consistently biblically minded, God-fearing, Their prosperity as a nation would have gone through many generations. However, because they thought they knew better than God, once they departed from that mission, they no longer had any right to exist. The only reason why they were existing because God was going to use them as the light of the world. And from that plateau, they would bring the gospel to other nations. And that is what they failed most miserably to recognize. Consider once again what Israel's mission was to be as a nation. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 5 and following, notice what God says, Behold, and remember, whenever God begins with the term behold, He said, this is very special. I'm going to tell you something very special. Open your eyes and recognize what I'm telling you as something very important. I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great, who hath God so nigh unto them, as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great, that hath statutes and judgments so righteous, as all this law, which I set before you this day, Only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from thine heart all the days of thy life, but teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons. They were to be special. They were to be a light upon a hill and a city with parapets around them that no other nation could destroy. Israel was God's righteous prototype for all of the nations of the world, and Israel gave it up in order to become like the pagan nations, those third world cursed nations that God already had condemned, in order to live in abject poverty and misery under the iron hand of Saul. In our own nation today and among many professing Christians, including the clergy 
There is a growing cry to be like the nations of the world, particularly the nations that have embraced Marxism, totalitarianism, socialism, and communism. Now everything looks rosy. We should be more like them. Let's have this big, this group hug, kumbaya moment. We don't want to be special anymore. We don't want God as our king. We want to be like everyone else because we have this guilt complex that God has blessed America more than he's blessed some of the third world nations. And yet these nations, at the very core of their being, are anti-Christian. And to desire such a political, governmental, and societal structure is to repudiate the God of creation, the King of nations. God's plan for Israel was to overturn their rebellion by giving them the lust of their depraved heart once they decided to be like the other nations, as he did in the wilderness when they demanded meat instead of the holy manna that God gave them from heaven, which would have been enough for them. And so whenever a people vehemently and continually demand that which God had forbidden, he gives them over to their lusts and curses them in order to humiliate them through great suffering and sorrow. Israel's future was not going to be a happy future. Israel's proposition by demanding such a king was actually a move to control history. They wanted to forget what God had said. They thought that choosing a king after their own desires, that they could control the outcome of Israel's history. We don't want to kowtow anymore to this religiosity. We want to plot our own course and not allow the providential dealings of God to plot our course. They believed that they could control the outcome of history. They believed that this king would bring victory, prosperity, peace, and safety to our nation. Any government that violates God's prescription for a holy nation must convince its people that they can bring peace and safety, victory and prosperity to the nation. That's what politics is all about. And yet, the scripture warns that whenever this path is taken, when people finally agree that yes, we can control our history, that we can have mankind by their feeble knowledge without God bringing us peace and safety, victory and prosperity. Whenever we think that way, the Lord comes upon that nation, upon that people, all those wicked men and women, and God looks at them as a thief because they're trying to steal providential history from the people so that they can control it. It is the wicked man that tries to steal history from God. But God says, no, I will come upon you as a thief in the night and you will go into misery because of my cursings. Notice what Paul tells the Thessalonians, that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Now, by, by this, he's referring to the day of the Lord as the day of judgment upon wicked men and nations within time and history. I do not think this means at all or implies or implies at all the end of time. Notice what it says. For yourselves know perfectly, this is 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and following, that the day of the Lord, this day of judgment, whether it's in time and in history or even at the end of the world, or at the end of someone's life for that matter, that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night, for when they shall say, peace and safety, 
Think about it. What do politicians say? We want safety. We're going to bring safety. We want peace. We're going to do this, this, and the other thing in a tyrannical fashion because we're going to bring peace. We're going to bring prosperity to the people when in fact they're bringing bondage. So when they shall say, the wicked of the world say, peace and safety, what does God say? Then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. So be very careful when your governing officials tell you that they will provide for you safety. Because only the Lord brings safety. And He only brings safety by obedience. He only brings prosperity by obedience. So while, while this is a lesson for all time, Adam Clark particularly applies it to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the entire nation of Israel. Now remember, there's a historical aspect to this and of course Paul is looking forward to that destruction. Notice what he says. He says, this points out very particularly the state of the Jewish people when the Romans came against them. Remember, they were now rebelling against God. They were rebelling against God at this point in a very real way. And so fully persuaded were they that God would not deliver the city and temple to their enemies, that they refused every overture that was made to them. In the storming of the city and the burning of their temple and the massacre of several hundreds of thousands of themselves, the rest being sold for slaves and the whole of them dispersed over the face of the earth. That's what happens to nations that defy God. And so the more a wicked nation rebels against God, the more they rely on themselves to bring about peace and safety when in fact destruction is imminent. So when they say peace and safety, when you hear this on the news, when the president says it, when the congress say it, when this says it, that says it, when the governor says it, or whoever says it, look out. Recognizing God or not recognizing God as the God of history is a moral choice. Israel's repudiation of God was a choice based upon a perverted view of morality. Remember, we saw that they had a perverted view of a world view which was perverted, but this is also a perverted view of morality. Because once God is removed from history, history has no longer any meaning. Once you remove God from history, history loses its meaning. By removing God from the equation of Israel's history, Israel lost all sense of their initial meaning and purpose in history. They were floundering. They had no providential waymarks to look back to, to have hope or encouragement, because they thought that they could erase their history and start all over again from their perverted, immoral view of what they thought was right and wrong. It is happening today in our America author and Christian theologian Joseph Boot explains this. Practically, history is first and foremost a moral problem for human beings. How to live, how to learn from it, what to learn from it, and taking responsibility for our part in it. If we exclude God from history, we discover we are unable to find meaning in it and become incapable of affirming anything about history or time. If no God and no purpose exists beyond history, if there is no viable idea of the future implying pattern or purpose, since there is no meaning and consequences in time to give us a concept of the future, since the present is 
Meaningless. You lose your history, you lose all meaning. Israel was forfeiting their future by removing their history from a God-centered understanding. R.J. Rushdoony adds this, to surrender a concept of time which binds past, present, and future in terms of related meaning is to surrender the reality principle for the pleasure principle. And this is why the true, accurate, and honest teaching of history, whether it's ugly or beautiful, it doesn't really matter. It's still what happened. And we need to take responsibility for both. But to try to undermine history, or change history, or pervert history, is sinful, it's wicked. And anyone that is affiliated with that mindset, they're culpable, and they will be held by God culpable for it. So what we need is an accurate and honest teaching of history, because that is vital to our nation's survival, and to any nation for that matter. What Israel wanted was that their lust would be satisfied, so that they surrendered They would do anything to have their lust satisfied. And what they did was they surrendered the reality of everything that God had done in the past for a faulty present decision in the hope of a future deliverance without God. My friends, brothers and sisters, you can have no future deliverance without God. And for them, for that Israeli nation, this was an insane move. The Marxists in America are seeking to recreate what Israel was attempting. But not only are the powers that be in our nation committing the same mistakes as Israel, they're inventing all new ones. They're being far more creative in a wicked and perverted way and therefore they're becoming more dangerous and deadly than even what happened in Israel's day. So you destroy any remembrance of God's providential dealings with America in order to bring about a present solution which has an anti-Christian future and you destroy the civilization itself. That is what we are headed for. And what does the Church of Jesus Christ do? What does the pulpit say? Make sure you get your devotion done this morning. Make sure you live a holy life. Now all of that is good. But by just doing that, That has brought about what we have today. Again, Joseph Boot says this, The Bible depicts God as the ultimate ruler. Many Western Christians then have made a great error, internalizing and artificially imposed a masochistic guilt complex, cowering in ignorant embarrassment because of what the cultural Marxists have told them about their civilization, the shame they should feel, and the reparations they could make. Is that not for us today? That quote. He continues, Certainly, an appropriately biblical sense of humility and perspective must be maintained that since we are all fallen beings, the sinful desires to domination and subjugation of others have been very present in our history of Christendom, a.k.a. slavery. This does not mean, however, that the Christian's view of the past should be characterized by a false humility that scurrilously runs down all the hard-won cultural and missionary achievements of generations of Christians in the interests of pleasing the purveyors of an anti-Christian ideology. 
The common historical infallible criticism allegedly uncovering a cynical raw will to power in Western history and the accompanying masochistic demand to repent of our history is pure pretense. A hypocritical mask used to hide an elitist hatred of biblical religion, which the statist engine of political correctness, a.k.a. cultural Marxism, has used to drive the Christian faith into hiding. In short, those hostile to biblical faith have developed an alternative theology of history. This vision offers us a new satanic empire and with it a new plan of salvation, end quote. He says it all, doesn't he? And what does the church do? Well, they're not reading any of these books. They're not looking at any of these theologians. They're still on the quest to please the cultural Marxists. And anyone, and I say that here, anyone that aligns themselves with cultural Marxism or this, this woke idea of let's, let's bring reparations all around, they are also to be put on notice. Anyone in the Christian community that dares to align themselves with such wickedness needs to be put on notice. Israel was ignoring what God had done in their behalf over the existence of their entire nation's life. And that is why God keeps reminding them of where they were in the past. And the only reason why Israel was once great is because they regarded God as great. Sadly, as a result of their will to be as God, in effect they became agnostic at best and atheistic at worst. Boot again explains, if history itself does not begin with meaning, it has none at all. Thus, agnostic and atheistic historiography begins with the assumption that the absolute personal creator God of Scripture has nothing to do with history, and as a result, we are reduced to the position of wanderers in a mindless multiverse. Notice, not a universe, a multiverse. The problem with this, Boot goes on to say, is that human beings cannot exist in a mindless multiverse. Somehow they have to give it meaning. The problem is that they do give it meaning, but they give it meaning apart from God and His providential workings in time and history. Israel sought to give meaning to history by controlling it through politics and military action. In our day, we should add technology as well. And so through politics which would include law, military activity, and technology mankind has sought to control history in order to construct it in his own image. He is ever seeking to control the events and outcomes of history through these means, and too many Christians have jumped on the bandwagon. Now, no matter what the controlling venue is, politics, law, military, might, or technology, it is, in and of itself, a religious quest for ultimate control. It's just another attempt to be as God. Look at what... Look what Facebook is doing. Look at what all of these technocrats are doing. All these social media. They're trying to control the outcome of elections so they can control the outcome of the future because they have disregarded the past and disregarded God. We are in a whirlwind, my friends. We are in a whirlwind. Verse 2, says this, Baal worship in the Middle East was the worship of lords, natural and political, who governed all reality. The political rulers readily adopted Baalism in order to command that total control offered by this political, magical worldview. Moloch worship, with its demand for human sacrifice, was politically motivated and magically motivated, and the word Moloch literally means king. 
the medicine men of American Indian tribes had little relationship to religion. Their function was magical, and medicine was one facet of their claim over reality. Notice that last tagline. And medicine was one facet over their claim over reality. It was the claim to their control of reality. Note the comparison to America. Who do we trust? Are we just like the Baal worshippers who are putting all their faith in political, judicial, or military leaders? Because if, if we're really honest with ourselves, we tend to gravitate that way. And now this is not to say that we shouldn't care about who rules our political system, our government. On the contrary, we want righteous rulers. We want righteous judge. We want leaders who are, are conscious of God, who lead in a righteous capacity, but we should never put our entire trust in them. We should always look to God alone and place our trust in Him exclusively. Secondly, too many of us tend to think that political rules can control the outcome of history. And yet, the scripture says very clearly, that's not true. Only God is the absolute controller of history. So whenever I, I hear politicians say, we're going to do this and we're going to control that, we're going to do the other thing, I sit back and I laugh. I laugh. And I know, and I know for a fact that God is laughing too. Because because he will have them in derision. If a politician sponsors a bill or a, or he votes for some bill, it is it is God who is controlling that individual. And if a judge rules one way or the other, is not God controlling that judge's every decision? And when God is angry, he will let that judge make a wrong decision as a chastisement against his people for their insolence. And he does what he does, whether he's going to bless or curse a nation, but he is in sovereign control. Make no mistake about it. Thirdly, the third issue concerns Rush Tudin's comment on the medicine man is that he is a major component within the American Indian tribal system that believes that he can control history and reality through medicine. Think about the CDC today, the World Health Organization, the multitude of their expert minions that are using medicine, so-called, or the skewed statistics of medicine to control reality. This is the reality. You need to do this. You need to do that. We need to do the other thing. And now we're structuring a future according to our medicine men. Their idea of reality. Not the reality of God, but the reality of the medicine men. The COVID-19 mask mandate and the lockdown of the entire capitalistic system of the American economy is nothing more than the bureaucratic idea of medicine men defining reality so as to control it. That's what they want. So when they get there and they say, oh, we have new strain, we have this, we have the other thing, it's just a way to control you. Now, when my dear and good friend Stephen Halbrook's biblical critique of the mask issue, this is what Stephen observes. He says this, The mask violates God's natural order. The mask, the mask causes physical harm. The mask assaults social interactions and development. The mask legitimizes a lie. The mask promotes subversion of the social order and the subjugation of man. The mask sows discord. The mask was not mandated in Israel's civil code. He comments also on the aspect of the lie. That's intriguing too. When he comments on the aspect of the lie, he says the mask is also a violation of the commandments. Notice what he says. He says, we are neither to promote lies nor embrace them. The COVID-19 narrative is permeated by lies and deception. Notice, 
Testing can be very unreliable, producing false positives. The president of Tanzania found that even a goat and a piece of papaya was tested positive for COVID-19. A goat! The data is deliberately and obviously skewed to make us think we are dealing with something approaching the Black Death or the Holocaust. People who obviously die from something beside COVID-19 are said to have nevertheless died from it. Even if the testing was reliable, which it's not, there is no distinction between dying with or from COVID-19. There are economic incentives to diagnose someone with COVID-19. As you know, the hospitals get more funding. He continues, a great many people who are said to have died from COVID-19 were probably killed by the treatments, including ventilators. And so, regarding lies, what does the donning of the mask do? It legitimizes the mountain of lies backing the COVID-19 hysteria. It broadcasts to others that we are dealing with a super plague that kills people left and right. It also legitimizes the lie that masks are safe when it is quite obvious via considering God's natural order, experience, and science that they are not. Moreover, it also legitimizes the lie that the mass use of masks effectively fight viruses even though earlier in the scamdemic that's what he says scamdemic not pandemic we are told they aren't quite a coincidence that science changed during the course of the entire scamdemic he continues the mask is a symbol of subjection to and promotion of the totalitarian regime. It endorses all of the current and planned tyranny in the name of the false COVID-19 narrative, including keeping people from providing for their families, the persecution of the church, total government domination of society, controlling and tracking of our movements, the destruction of our economies and mass starvation, the banning of normal oxygen intake, vaccine genocide, and possibly other forms of genocide, the outright dehumanization of mankind, and all the evils that attend this. Now he concludes, The requirements to wear masks as a normal way of life under the COVID-19 pretext are clearly unbiblical. They violate God's natural order, the fruit of which is physical harm, social chaos, the assault on truth, treason, strife, and the subjugation of man, including the increasing persecution of the church, end quote. And yet we have churches that require mass when you're sitting in the pew. And then you're going to sing the hymn through the mask. America is living, we are living through a period where God has begun to weigh our nation in the balance and I am afraid we have been found wanting. Israel was on the brink of embracing a godless political system as a result of their faulty worldview as it pertained to their purpose and meaning in history. They had violated their oath of consecration before God and God was now going to hold them accountable. Make no mistake about it, everyone will be held accountable. God had secured initially their liberty but as long as they remain faithful, that securance would continue. Sadly, they refuse liberty. And that's just a mind-boggling thing. Why would anyone in their right mind refuse liberty? Is not freedom the most sought-after thing in the world? Why would anyone, why would Israel, why would America, why would anyone give up liberty? I'll tell you why. Because they gave up God. And once you give up God, you give up liberty. For where the Spirit of the Lord is, only there is liberty, only at that place. Observe another aspect of Israel's worldview. Israel's God, once they left off the true God, 
Their God was a God of power and of pleasure. Of power in that they wanted a military king to fight for them. They wanted safety. Of pleasure because they wanted to be able to redefine and control the world around them. That was pleasurable. So we can now plot out our own economic freedoms and our own economic prosperity. This brought Israel to a point of crisis. One might say that, that at this time, Israel was somehow ignorant to, to whom and what they were confederating with. But that is completely unfounded. They were not at all ignorant. Samuel made it a point to tell them this is what's going to happen. They were not ignorant. I don't think anyone voting for Marxism and, and socialism and totalitarianism is actually ignorant of what that is. They're ignorant of what it produces, perhaps, but they know exactly what they're doing. Because in order to get rid of God, you have to promote those kinds of governing structures. And they'll do anything to get rid of God. Israel had willfully rejected the counsel of Samuel and sought their own counsel. They had compromised the truth of God's truth for the manufacturing of their truth, their own truth, on their own terms, according to their own mind. And so our cultural crisis, much like Israel's, can be traced to a compromise within the church and the pagans of the land. We've confederated with the wicked. We've made an ungodly alliance with the wicked in our local churches. They departed from the living God and this departure, this, this amalgamation of theologies and cultural ideas does not come without a price. And so our national and cultural crisis can be traced directly to the compromise of the corporate visible church and the private and public loss of scriptural obedience. Now, according to Joseph Boot, once again, this is done through the severing of the connection between theology and every other area of life. We can never be theological head-scratchers. Our theology must translate into everyday life. I call this religious or in some circles theological schizophrenia. We have our mind here about theology, we're all on board here, but our life, well, we are compromised. That's schizophrenic. That's a disconnection between what is known to be a biblical fact and the direct application to it in everyday life. And while this idea is found in the teachings of Thomas Aquinas, it has been adopted to a large extent by the Reformed Christians today. And I say the Reformed Christians, not those out there in the evangelical Arminian churches, but even in the area of the Reformation. Aquinas believed that the revelation of God was to be used to solve theological issues, while natural law was to be used to solve philosophical issues of life. And his was a, a nature-grace dichotomy, where his idea of, of natural law came from Aristotle, making his philosophical approach to truth Greek and pagan rather than Christian. And we've adopted the same thing. Israel had fallen prey to a schizophrenic pagan view of thinking, but the real question is this. It's not what Israel did, or not even what steps they took to depart from God to embrace pagan thinking, nor is the real question, why did Israel choose a political structure which was not biblical? We've already, we've already understood those things. All of these questions, as we've explored, are important for our admonition. But these should not be the focus of our inquiry. The real question is, how are we to protect ourselves from doing exactly what Israel did? What steps should we be taking, even at this late date, because it's never too late? Repentance is never out of season. The road back and reconstruction is never too late. So what should we be doing? 
What should we do now to protect ourselves from doing exactly what Israel did? What steps should we be taking so that we do not fall into the same snare of theological schizophrenia that Israel fell into? What should we be doing? Well, first, we need to have a strong working knowledge of Scripture. When I say a strong working knowledge of Scripture, I don't mean a theological understanding, a working knowledge. That means that we are not only to read the Bible, but we are to study it deeply, first to develop a biblically sound theological world and life view, and secondly, to be able to apply it to our lives, the revelation of God, to be able to accurately apply the revelation of God to ourselves first and then the world around us. But sometimes we don't do that. We think, well, if I know a thing, I'm doing that thing. Just because you know a thing doesn't mean you're doing that thing. If you're doing that thing, that means you know the thing. But if you know it and you don't do it, it means you really don't know it. You understand what I just said? If you're doing a thing, it means you know the thing. If you're not doing the thing and you say you're doing, you, you know about that thing, you're really not. You're, you're confused. You're schizophrenic. You've got a malady. You've got a sickness. You need to go to the great physician. And you need to get your life in order. Secondly, we need to be able to explain our thoughts to others. Why we think the way we think. Why we do the things we do. One of the ways we can know that we understand something is by being able to explain it to others. If someone asks you for the hope that is within you and you can't explain it, that means you don't know it. And you can't say, well, it's very personal and I really can't explain it. Then you don't really know it. If you can't articulate it, then you don't know it. If we cannot explain ideas, principles, and precepts, especially of God's revelation to others, we do not understand it ourselves. We need to. Thirdly, the only way to accomplish this is to devote time to the Word of God. I do my best. I labor my best as hard as as I can to make sure that I am teaching you from this pulpit. The pulpit is a place of teaching. It's not a place of, of anecdotal sermons or topical things in order to make you feel good or to make sure that everybody has a decision at the end of the message and they come to the baptistry and everybody gets, has, has like this kumbaya kind of thing and everybody feels good about it. No, it's not about that. It's about teaching so that you can go from this place more knowledgeable, more convicted, more passionate than when you came in. And if you don't go out of here more knowledgeable and more passionate and convinced and challenged than when you came in, then I do not belong in this pulpit. And it is your duty to remove me if that's the case or if ever that should be the case. But in order to advance in knowledge, in order to devote your time to God's Word, you need to turn off all distractions You can't be studying God's Word and checking email and getting on the chat and seeing what's for sale, what's not for sale. You can't be chatting on Facebook. You've got to ask, well, what are my priorities? Especially when I'm sitting down doing my devotions. You turn off your phone. How many hours a day is your phone off? I'm not asking you to tell me. I'm just asking you to think about it. How many hours a day is your phone actually turned off? You know, on the phones, you have, uh, I think there's a stat that tells you how much time you've been on the phone. Let that be your convictor. Let that be your judge. If you spend more time on the internet or Facebook or any other social media or any other thing that distracts you, then in the pursuit of holiness, which includes training your children, disciplining them and discipling them, you cannot, and I say this with all love and compassion and care for your souls, you cannot... Truly be serious with God. 
I'm just sorry, you're just not serious. Because a man or a woman or a boy or a girl is serious, it will be evident in themselves, in their family, their children, in the way they live. Teach your children, mothers, that there's a time to study and a time to play, a time to eat and a time to sleep. Do not allow them to dictate your schedule. They're children. You are to dictate their schedule. You are in control. You're the priest of the house. You're the governess of the house. Do not allow it. And when they begin to control you, it's clobbering time. And I say that with all love and all concern, all compassion, because if you do not discipline and disciple your children, they will be part of the problem instead of part of the solution. And dads, you can't be an absentee father. You can't. You can't take a thousand hobbies when you have little ones. You've got to make sure that you are there. You're always there. Number one, not only for your children, not only for your children, number one, but also for your wife who's juggling these children. Five, six, seven, three, four, two, whatever. One, if they're a handful. You've got to be there. So decide right now, before you leave this Congregation, decide this morning, right now, what is more important, a godly seed or more stuff? Because more stuff requires money. More money requires more time on the job, away from the family. More time away from the family means more broken marriages and out-of-control children. So decide right now, because we are on the threshold of the first post-Christian generation, and it is transforming America, and many of those transforming Christians that are not really Christians, are seated in pews even today. These children who are going to destroy America are seated in the pews today. So we are on the threshold of the first post-Christian generation and it's transforming America. It is transforming us today as we speak. It is transforming America. And there are two reasons for this. Number one, far too many professing Christians send their children to government schools. Look, they may have had some vague argument 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. But there's no argument anymore. Because the government schools have said, in no uncertain terms, we will teach your children to be Canaanites. And you will pay for it. And you will love it. Or we will bring laws against you and bring SWAT teams to your door. Those days may be coming back. But the Christians still do it. They send their children to government schools which provide for them a brainwashing that no Sunday school or 20-minute sermon can undo. The second reason is more discouraging. Of those at home educate their children and claim that it's Christian education, it's really not. Too many have failed in providing a Christ-centered, kingdom-focused, kingdom-advancing education since they are educating for a career in the world of Canaan by using the world's model. Now, of course, you need a career, but you need a vocation Godward. So while each child needs to be trained to function in this world, they are primarily... Now, if you're a Christian, your child is primarily to be trained for the master's use in whatever career or vocation that they choose. So if the end goal of education is a better paycheck, that education is vanity and a vexation of spirit. And I don't know, you can argue me all day long. That's just the way it is. No one should dare claim that he or she is a Christian, an Orthodox real Christian, 
or that he or she maintains a Christian household, or that their children are educated in the school of Christ unless they are willing to sacrifice for that end. If they are not undertaking to that end, it is simply an old show. It's just a show of, of hypocrisy. Sadly, Israel lost the best part of their history when they rejected God, deciding that they would replace history and make their own future replacing him with worldly ideas and worldly pursuits Israel lost the best part of not only their history but the best part of God's blessing beloved let us not make that same mistake next we are introduced to Saul from the tribe of Benjamin when we return to the exposition on the first book of Samuel when we are when we are officially formally introduced to the tyrannical man, the tyrant of Israel, the king of Israel, King Saul. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.